So, um, as you saw tonight, um, my my role here in uh, the sangha sometimes is, um, or oftentimes, uh, is to um, uh, go to the top of the bowing mat and um, and then with the uh, help of the the jiko, the person that carries the flowers, uh, I come up to the mat and the the jiko offers me the flowers and I make an offering in the bowl right here of flower petals. And then we we go back to the top of the mat. I go back to the top of the mat and we all turn toward the altar and we offer bows. We offer bows. And then after the bows, the kokyo intones the name of a chant, uh, an ancient chant that um, we that comes to us from the, the Chinese or Japanese uh, Zen tradition, and we together we we offer that chant to to the to the Buddha and you know all beings. We offer it to each other. We offer that we offer all of this to each other. Yeah, for all of our, all of these practices are offerings. So offerings, giving, giving is, is, is an important uh, central aspect of our practice. And uh, Dogen has an essay uh, called uh, uh, The Bodhisattva's Four Methods of Guidance. And, and he says this about, about giving or about offering. Offering and giving go together. He says, giving means non-greed. Giving means not to covet. It is to give away unneeded belongings to someone you don't know. It is to offer flowers blooming on a distant mountain to the Buddha. Whether it is of teaching or of material, each gift, each offering has its value and is worth giving. Even if the gift, even if the offering is not your own, there is no reason to keep from giving. Even if the offering of giving is not your, if, if the gift you, you want to give is not your own, there's no reason to keep, to prevent yourself from giving. So it occurred to me, uh, sitting zazen one day recently, um, that a gift that uh, I can give, and I think that you can give, is um, called uh, zazen. And, uh, and zazen is a gift 
that you can give that is not your own. Uh, you don't you don't own zazen, so you don't possess zazen. Uh, you can't you can't claim zazen. You might think you you might think you could, uh, but um, I would like to say I would like to suggest that you really can't possess zazen. And but you can. You can give it. You can give it to yourself, and you can give it to everything. And to to have the spirit of giving in zazen is, um, uh, I would I would call it uh, right meditation. It's part of the eightfold path. Right meditation. Excuse me while I take a drink. So zazen uh, is doing zazen is giving away zazen every moment, giving away the meditation every moment. This is a this is the right spirit of sitting meditation practice. Give it to yourself, give it to others, and just give it away. And then I was thinking that you know we often chant uh, in this zendo. We often chant. Uh, a chant called the Heart Sutra. And in the Heart, Heart Sutra, it says, um, in emptiness, uh, there are no, no, there's no eye, there's no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. So you could say, you could, you could understand this as uh, this way, uh, instead of emptiness, uh, say in zazen, in zazen, no eye, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. Why? Because those things are given away. They're, you're, in zazen, you're giving away Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. You're giving it to everything. So you can, you can, in zazen, you can give away the six senses and their objects. Sights, sounds, smells, touch, tastes, mind. You can give those away too. And I encourage that. I think that's the right spirit. Giving away the six senses in Zazen. 
giving them to giving them to the Buddha, like like giving flowers on a distant mountain to the Buddha. And uh, you know, also in the Heart Sutra, it says uh, it says that we can give away all of Buddhism. We can give all the teachings of Buddhism away too. So we can give away, um, you know, four noble truths are mentioned in the Heart Sutra. We can give those away. Yeah, the twelve-fold uh, chain of dependent origination is alluded to in the Heart Sutra, and we can give that away. We can offer it. We can offer it and give it away. Let go of it. And, you know, just sit. So this is bringing the spirit, you know, this this teaching of emptiness is a spirit of giving. And giving everything away. Offering it. Offering it. Open hands. I'd like to read the uh, passage from Dogen again. Giving means non-greed. Giving means not to covet. It is to give away unneeded belongings to someone you don't know. It is to offer flowers blooming on a distant mountain to the Buddha. Whether it is of teaching or material, Each gift has its value and is worth giving. Even if the gift is not your own, there is no reason to keep from giving. So, um, this is kind of a shift now in my, my topic a little bit, but I wanted to mention, as some of you know, um, on a rather somewhat, um, as a somewhat impulsive act, uh, Karen and I went to, uh, flew over to Amsterdam recently uh, to see a, a show of paintings and uh, and enjoy that uh, that that city, and uh, to uh, see what it had to offer. And uh, while we were in Amsterdam, um, well, actually, in advance of going to Amsterdam, I I well knew uh, that um, <clears throat> Amsterdam is the place where uh, Anne Frank uh, wrote her famous diary. And uh, so in advance of going on this trip, I read that diary for the first time. I had never read it before. And then we were, when we were in Amsterdam, uh, we went to the house uh, where Anne Frank and her family and four other people hid uh, for two years uh, to be uh, from the Nazis 
the occupying Nazis uh, who, who occupied the Netherlands from, I think, 1942 till the end of the war. And they, occupied, they stayed in this house that we visited until they were betrayed by unknown persons and arrested by the Nazis and um, sent to the face their death in Poland. Uh, so um, only one person of that family um, survived um, the camps. And that was Anne Frank's father. And when he returned to the Netherlands um, from Auschwitz, um, he received a copy of Anne's diary that had been miraculously um, discovered, found by one of the helpers, uh, the Dutch Gentile helpers who had protected them for two years. And that diary, she had, she had held on to that diary in hopes that uh, she would be able to give it back to Anne. Of course, Anne was murdered, so she could not. But she was able to give it to her father, her father, and her father then read it and uh, decided to make it his mission, his life's work to um, get the diary published and preserve her legacy. The, leg the legacy of his 15-year-old <clears throat> daughter. And, you know, if you, I'm sure, how many people here have read Anne Frank's diary? Yeah, many of you have read it. And uh, I think, you know, maybe you met it a long time ago, but you may not remember. But one thing that, that, um, that came through to me uh, was just how, um, just how ambitious um, Anne Frank was. Um, and, um, you know, she, 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 she was, um, like one of those young people who can't wait to grow up. Uh, she was eager to, to mature and be able to, she recognized herself as a writer. She, she knew that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a journalist. And, uh, you know, and, and then she, you know, as she was writing the diary, she also conceived of the idea of publishing it herself. And she, she had a, she noted down that she would publish it as a, as a book and it would be called The Secret Annex, which was the name of the, that she gave to the place that they were hiding in this uh, building that we went to. And visited. 
you know that um, if you've read the diary that that uh, Anne, um, you know, had some complaints. Uh, she she had some complaints about the other people that she was living with. Uh, of course, you can't when you go to the house you 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 can't quite even imagine how how the, how the the smallness of the space and how eight people could have lived for two years without ever going outside in that space because the rooms are, are are tiny. So it's a place where you could easily generate some complaints. <laughs> it would be. It would, you would have anybody would have complaints about the circumstances, uh, but and uh, also had the complaints of a of a teenager, and you know oftentimes I think teenagers feel that they are not understood, uh, that they are not listened to, um, they are not respected, and also uh, not loved. And Anne felt all of those things. She 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 felt all that all of those things. She and she most painfully she felt that she wasn't loved by her mother. So she has a lot of complaints in the book, but the complaints are well written. <laughs> and um, but she also has um, she also has some uh, moments. In the diary that uh, that soar and uh, are really uh, have a kind of spiritual feeling and um, I was just finishing the book on the plane going over, and I read one of those moments and it was kind of uncanny because uh, we were flying out on february twenty third and this entry was written on February 23rd. And I'd like to read this entry to you because as soon as I read it, I felt like I wanted to share it with, you know, I wanted to offer this. I want, it's not mine. I want to give it away to you. And it's, it's Anne Frank's words. You might remember from, if you've read the diary, that she addresses the diary to an imaginary friend uh, named Kitty, uh, who Kitty, in in in, in uh, distinction from all the people she was living with, she felt uh, Kitty gave her, uh, you know, unreserved positive regard. Kitty loved her, and Kitty had confidence in her, and Kitty believed in her, and so she believed in Kitty, and uh, she often addresses Kitty as uh, my dearest friend or my dearest kitty and so forth because kitty was really nice so this is the entry from um, Wednesday February 23rd 1944 my dearest kitty the weather's been wonderful since yesterday and I've perked up quite a bit my writing the best thing I have is coming along well Oh, I should say in in this in this uh, in this section, she refers to Peter, who she's in love with. He's 17. He's the son of another couple that are being hidden in the house, and she's in love with Peter. And they have a they have a very sweet kind of love affair. Um, well, basically, 
she 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 wins him over with after working on him for a long time uh so anyway you'll see he he'll come up later my writing the best thing i have is coming along well i go to the attic almost every morning to get the stale air out of my lungs this morning when i went there peter was busy cleaning up he finished quickly and came over to where i was sitting on my favorite spot on the floor the two of us looked out at the blue sky the bare chestnut tree glistening with dew the seagulls and other birds glinting with silver as they swooped through the air and we were so moved and entranced that we couldn't speak he stood with his head against a thick beam while i sat we breathed in the air looked outside and both felt that the spell shouldn't be broken with words we remained like this for a long while and by the time he had to go to the loft to chop wood i knew he was a good decent boy he climbed the ladder to the loft and i followed during the 15 minutes he was chopping wood we didn't say a word either i watched him from where i was standing and could see he was obviously doing his best to chop the right way and show off his strength but i also looked out the open window letting my eyes roam over a large part of amsterdam over the rooftops and on to the horizon a strip of blue so pale it was almost invisible as long as this exists i thought this sunshine this cloudless sky and as long as i can enjoy it how can i be sad the best remedy for those who are frightened lonely or unhappy is to go outside somewhere they can be alone alone with the sky nature and god for then and only then can you feel that everything is as it should be and that god wants people to be happy amid nature's beauty and simplicity as long as this exists and that should be forever i know that there will be solace for every sorrow whatever the circumstances i firmly believe that nature can bring comfort to all who suffer oh who knows perhaps it won't be long before i can share this overwhelming feeling of happiness with someone who feels the same as i do yours and i think uh 
many people who go to that house. Uh, feel close to Anne Frank. By the time I finished the diary, I felt very close to her. I don't know. We have this term in our in our in our tradition. We have this term called Buddha nature. And I, I really, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of debate, and people give whole classes and sessions and discussions about what Buddha nature is. But when I read that passage that I just read you, I thought, well, it must be pretty close to this. It must be pretty close to this kind of feeling um, about nature itself and about, you know, wanting to, you know, wanting people to have that kind of, that kind of experience, that kind of apprehension of nature, that kind of relationship with nature. And mind you, she wrote that she had not been able to go outside for many months. Actually, this was at least, she probably hadn't been outside for a year, at least by the time she wrote this. I think they were in the house from 1943 to 1945. This was written in 44. So all she had was a window, you know, to look at the sky and to look out over Amsterdam. But that was enough for her to feel great relief, great freedom and happiness. And she says, as long as, as, long as people have this, you know, they can't be sad. Still, we do feel sad. They make a point, you know, in, in the, in the uh, presentation in the museum that is part of the house now, saying that, you know, uh, Anne Frank was only one of six million. Six million Jews, gypsies, gay people, disabled people, who were murdered by the Nazis and, um, and only one uh, who had their, their life cut off of six million. Six million, you know, other people had their potential and their potential had what they had to offer. And Frank had something to offer, there's no doubt about that, but six million other people did too. And their, 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 their opportunity to offer, to give their life to this world was cut off. So you can't come away from that place uh, without uh, feeling great sadness, I think. 
But on the other hand, we know that uh, we can be glad and we can be, you know, rather amazed that, you know, Anne Frank had uh, the capacity in the midst of um, that um, dangerous situation that she lived in, uh, always some amount of fear of being discovered. She had the capacity to feel, feel joy and feel the, the joy in life. There, I, we learned, uh, we, have some, we have some Dutch friends and we got to go see uh, people that I had met in uh, a Buddhist pilgrimage to China some years ago. So we got to go see uh, uh, them. And they told us about that there are other diaries there by other people that aren't as well known you know, around the world. But um, they told us about one in particular that I intend to read by, uh, who's by a person who was somewhat you know, more mature, you know, older. And her name is Eddie Hellison. I intend to read her diaries as well. So I started out talking about, uh, I started out talking about giving or making an offering. In in uh, so in 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 uh, traditional Buddhist uh, teaching. Uh, there's said to be three things, uh, three categories of things that you can give or make an offering of. And uh, those three are to make an offering of material things. One, um, giving away material things. Uh, and the second is uh, to uh, offer or give away dharma teach dharma, give away dharma, give dharma books, so forth. Um, give bark dharma teachings. And, and the, uh, the uh, third one is to uh, give fearlessness. The bodhisattva, these are the three things a bodhisattva, an enlightening being can give away. Material things, Pretty easy, we all do that, right? I mean, everyone here gives away material things all the time. You give to people who, uh, as Dogen says, you know, don't, you know, don't have enough. Uh, that's pretty easy to do. Most everybody does that. And uh, it's, um, yeah, pretty normal thing. Uh, it's maybe not so um, usual uh, to give Dharma. Uh, but I, I think that, um, that everybody who practices, everybody who does Zazen and maintains a practice is, is, is giving Dharma. And uh, the reason I say that is because 
when you practice uh, people in your orbit, in your, in your sphere, um, know that you are someone who practices. Uh, so, and even if they, they don't practice and aren't moved to practice, they know you as someone who practices. And I think that makes a difference. And I had a, a, a very sweet moment uh, once some time ago uh, in this regard, uh, because I went to, I was going to a sashin, which is a long retreat, uh, seven day retreat. And on the way to the retreat, I stopped to see my, my parents. And my parents uh, never really had any curiosity about um, what, what I was doing uh, with Zen. Uh, they were, I would say, uh, pretty much befuddled by it uh, or, or just uh, incurious, really. I, I think more than anything, incurious about, about what, what, what Buddhism was. Or what my mother at one point said, my, my brother told her that I was a Buddhist. And she said, he's not a Buddhist. He's a, he's a Zen. <laughs> so that's kind of you know the the level of inquiry that she had not made you know, um, but um, anyway I was going to this sashin and I stopped by to see them and um, and my dad as I was leaving my dad said to me, have a good sit. Have a good sit. Now I had been, you know, this wasn't the first session. I'd been doing Zen for already, you know, 15, 20 years at this point. But he said, have a good sit. And I just, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Because I thought, where did he come up with that? (laughs) You know, I didn't think he had any, you know, inkling of, of saying, which which is a common saying among us, right? If somebody is going off to to a retreat, you say, have a good sit. Yeah, hope you have a good sit. But, um, you know, so I feel like even though my parents were so incurious about what I was doing, I, I feel like uh, I, I did... Um, uh, I give, did give give the gift of Dharma to them, and and I think the main the the main thing was uh, they saw uh, how much good Dharma did for me, to you know for me, and and seeing something that was good for me was good for them. They wanted to see me do well you know, in, in, in life, in the world. I mean, every parent wants that for their children, right? And they had, in my younger years, they had seen me not do well and, and, and actually, you know, disappoint them in, you know, for at least the first 40 years of my life, you know. 
um, 30 anyway, for sure. And, um, uh, but anyway, they saw that whatever it was, you know, whatever it was, whatever this Dharma was, whatever this Zen was, uh, it was doing me good. And so they, they had, I think, some good feeling about, about Dharma, even though they really didn't, they couldn't have, they wouldn't have said it that way. So I think this kind of, you know, your practice radiates in ways that you just, you can't know. You can't know. You know, Dogen says, you know, in, in one of his more uh, effusive moments, uh, all those who live with you and speak with you will obtain endless Buddha virtue. <laughs> this is for a person that practices. So, so I would say uh, everybody, everyone is giving the gift of Dharma. Everyone who practices, everyone who's studying Dharma, everyone who's practicing Dharma is also giving Dharma. And that is Dharma. Giving Dharma is Dharma. And then the last virtue, the last um, thing that uh, the Bodhisattva can give is fearlessness. You know, this goes back to Anne Frank. Um, Anne Frank, I don't think she was a fearful person, uh, but she was afraid. Uh, she lived in... Uh, great jeopardy for those two years and danger. And eventually that uh, danger uh, was, you know, made manifest. But, um, but she held on. We don't know too much about her life in the camps, but we have to imagine that It, it was very, very hard. But but when she was writing her diary, we know that she was, at times at least, joyful. That she she could see the heart of things the beauty of things. And to have that kind of moment, that kind of, you know, the writing of that passage that I read you, I think that demonstrates fearlessness. To, to contact that joy, to contact that joy is, is an antidote for fear. Contact that joy in your life, and I think she—I know—I I can tell she 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 soared as she wrote that, and uh, so I think you know she knew fearlessness.
Well, this is probably not the kind of talk that generates questions, but <laughs> uh, if you would like to um, comment um, or question, please feel free to. Yeah, Sarah. Thank you so much, Jim, for sharing that. Is there a mic someplace? Oh, it's, oh, it's there. I, the, um, I thank you very much for bringing up that issue of fearlessness. And when you first started talking about it, I was saying, what is that? I don't get it. Mm. You know, that doesn't make sense to me. But as I've been thinking about it in the context of your talk, I, I've seen situations in myself where I had this impulse to do something that was good for somebody else. You know, I was going to go up and say something to a person who looked like they were upset or not having a good day, but I, fear would stop me. I would say, mm. well, you know, I don't, I don't really know that person that well, and maybe I'm misreading their face and everything. And, and I think many times my fear has stopped me from giving. And, and so I, I, as you were talking, I, I can really begin to see why fearlessness is so critical to that. It allows us to not think about ourselves, but to see and think about what that other person needs. So thank you for, for clarifying that for me. I, that's, I think, something that stopped me from giving many times in the past. And it's, you know, uh, when you see your, that insight that you see yourself stopped, that's, you know, that, that you're seeing the fear. So that's, you know, studying the self. And that also, just that process of seeing yourself stopped is part of fearlessness too. Thank you. And uh, see, we're going to try to end differently uh, tonight. So I think what we're going to do is uh, we'll chant the closing lecture chant, and then we'll we'll stand up in a circle right here, right here. And it can, we're already in pretty good circle. And then we'll we'll do some we'll do some closing. Uh, some more closing. Okay.